Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 17th September with me, Ian Welsh. Earlier this week, I spoke with Alan Kruger, Head of Supply Chains and Natural Climate Solutions at Satelligence. We talked about some of the challenges for companies to decarbonise their supply chains, the radical solutions that will be necessary, and some thoughts about outcomes from COP26. Highlights of our conversation are coming up in a bit. Also in the podcast this week is an interview with Victor Taminjong, who is Assistant Technical Manager for Africa at the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. We talked about how the palm oil sector has developed in West Africa and how the RSPO is working to demonstrate the long-term benefits from adopting sustainable practices for smallholder farmers in particular. That's all to come, but first, some sustainable business news. The European Union has announced a further €4 billion of financial support for developing world countries up to 2027 to prevent climate change and adapt to its impacts. The EU already contributes $25 billion in climate funding each year and has called on the US to up its game in the run-up to the COP26 meetings in Scotland. Climate finance is expected to be a major discussion point when the parties assemble in Glasgow in November. The richer nations have so far failed collectively to deliver on their 2009 pledge to have provided $100 billion annually to poorer countries by 2020. Current estimates are that €80 billion is provided each year. The OECD says that the countries of the EU are collectively already the biggest sources of funding. The world's largest direct capture and storage plant that permanently removes carbon dioxide from the air has launched in Iceland. Developed by Swiss company Climeworks, the Orca facility can collect 4,000 tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere every year and store it underground. A key part of the design is that it is efficient in its use of construction materials, including steel, and is easily replicable elsewhere and to be scaled up. Speaking to the Financial Times, the Climeworks CEO said that the work has already started on designing a facility 10 times the size of the Orca plant and the company has ambitions to be removing millions of tonnes of carbon a year by the second half of the decade. Demand for offsets from the Orca plant has been very high, despite the €1,000 per tonne price, making it the most expensive carbon offset in the world. The plant has already nearly sold out of the credits for its expected 12-year lifespan. And the voluntary carbon markets are booming, according to a new report from Ecosystem Marketplace, and on track to top $1 billion in 2021, nearly 60% up on 2020 in the first eight months of the year. Total all-time value is now $6.7 billion and rising. The rise is driven, the state of voluntary carbon markets report says, by companies with net zero targets and a more general increasing desire for the Paris climate goals to be achieved. The most active buyers in the market are the energy, consumer goods, finance and insurance sectors. All of these are facing significant challenges in quickly eliminating emissions from operations, supply chains and investments because they are in large part reliant on existing infrastructure or technology that will take time to upgrade or replace. Purchasing carbon credits means that such companies can offset their emissions now while simultaneously working to reduce environmental impact over time. Such is the scale of the decarbonisation required to meet the Paris 1.5 Celsius pathway. Estimates suggest that the voluntary carbon markets will need to expand 15 times by 2030 and 100 times by 2050 from 2020 levels. Ecosystem Marketplace's Stephen Donofrio, one of the report's authors, will be joining me on the podcast in a couple of weeks' time, so do listen out for that. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on our autumn conference programme. 
Coming up first from the 27th to 29th September is our next Future of Climate Action event, where we'll be talking about how business can tackle greenhouse gases and supply chains. We've got some great speakers and panellists joining us, including senior representatives from Kellogg, Calgate Palmolive, Ascot Airlines and Amazon. There are still some reduced price passes available, but if you want to save $200, you'll need to be quick. We'll be focusing on the future of plastics with Unilever, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Mars and many others over three days from the 11th to the 13th of October and save £100 on three-day passes if you register by 24th September. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference returns on the 30th November to the 2nd of December. 300 plus delegates will be learning from the insights of Tesco, Dole Food, Musa Mass, the RSPO and many more. And you can save £150 on 3D conference passes if you register before the end of the month. A few days ago, I spoke with Alan Kruger, Head of Supply Chains and Natural Climate Solutions at Satelligence. We covered a lot of ground, including talking about the role of nature-based solutions and natural carbon capture as companies tackle the challenges of decarbonising their supply chains. Everyone seems to be thinking about how they can get to net zero on very ambitious timeframes. For forest commodities and forest commodity supply chains, what do you think are the main decarbonizing challenges? It seems the one of the first main issues is companies determining their role and their level of responsibility. In this space, you have growers and traders and FMCGs, and they all see their role in the net zero world differently. And they're struggling on how to get involved in mitigation, what role they should play. Are they the finance? Are they the project developers? Are they just the customer of, of net zero products uh, in some cases? So in general, they need to have better guidance on how to act together across any of the commodities, especially in palm and cocoa is what I've been working with a lot recently. You also have the same companies that are at different stages of their net zero journeys. And so they're not ready to act together, even if they wanted to. So some have science-based targets and have a plan. Others committed to developing SBT, but they have no clear roadmap yet. And they don't have the data, the full supply chain information to actually get started. And so they don't, they don't have the full picture to take that type of holistic climate action. Is there a danger then, do you think, to trying to start too quickly? Everyone's talking about the pace of change that's necessary. But is there sometimes an element of caution, you know, just make sure you've got everything lined up before you really go for it? I don't think so. I think actually many companies should be praised for sort of taking the leap in making a commitment without having a full-fledged plan because it sort of spurs all the other stakeholders in this space to jump to action at the same time to help them sort of catch up because all these companies can catch up as quickly as they desire to. What examples can you point to that demonstrate really good progress in decarbonizing? All these good progress for these companies starts with good data and that is both spatially and temporally specific data. We've worked with a number of companies on establishing more accurate baselines for deforestation and carbon emissions on their farms and their sourcing landscapes. And others have worked with us to identify, such as in cocoa, where their full sun and where their shade cocoa farms are and coffee farms are. And this is one of the first critical steps, I think, towards making a strategic plan, as others have already done, especially in the cocoa space, where to best utilize natural carbon capture uh, via sort of the, the nature-based solutions portfolio of actions as part of their net zero strategy for their supply chain. I think Palm is kind of making the most progress in this space because it's also where an example of what I think a model going forward is the, the Rimba Collective run by our friends at Lestari Capital. They're the model for pooling resources from companies in the palm oil industry and then with plans to expand to the other commodities uh, to create these nature positive supply chain outcomes is the best 
it's sort of taking the jurisdictional red approach that governments and multilaterals have been working on and taking it to the commodity supply chain strategy space for climate, which I think could be quite fruitful. Do you think palm oil is further down the line because it's, it's been subject to most pressure? That's probably true with RSPO and with the pressure since since the mid-2000s. And then just with both the lack of action and the sort of increased action from the government, depending on which decade you're looking at, you have more maturity in the local government and the national government working with industry to take these steps. Let's talk a bit about cooperation then. What do you think that effective cooperation between government growers and buyers and all the other supply chain players looks like? For me and, and a lot of the collective action that I've worked on, the most effective cooperation begins with the open dialogue of all those parties and the inclusion of key stakeholders. I think a lot of people get swamped in bringing in too many stakeholders, but as long as you can identify the key parties, you can then have alignment on clear intent uh, for shared goals and plans. When you look at governments, essentially all governments have an NDC uh, via the Paris Agreement, and these include their LULUCF, their, their land use emission reduction targets. And I would say in almost all cases, they need the private sector via growers and traders, and in some cases, the smallholders they source from to do the heavy lifting to actually create those emission reductions for their public commitments. And at the same time, you have growers, traders, farmers that need the government for regulatory certainty. They need clear and long-lasting policies, incentives, disincentives in some cases to, to base their plans and commitments on. And so many of these companies will set a target with little of the work actually done on how they will achieve it. And I think, as I said previously, that's something to be praised because they're pushed by consultants to do so, but then they need to be rewarded with the cooperation from governments and multilaterals with the blended finance vehicles that are always being talked about. And lastly, I think a key tool available to facilitate the cooperation between these parties are these monitoring platforms, many of which intelligence is involved in that leverage the immense amounts of, of data that these groups have, especially the, the private sector. But that data needs to be organized and it needs to be put in context in these sourcing landscapes that they can actually be used to make these strategic landscape level decisions and decisions on where to pool and focus human and financial capital on reforestation and agroforestry and other restoration I think are made a lot more clear for decisive action when you use remote sensing combined with supply chain data, because that essentially serves as the basis for an implementation plan uh, for each of these uh, commodity collaborative efforts. You mentioned uh, monitoring platforms just now. What characterizes what a good platform or tool to help in this regard? What characterizes a good one? I think a good one is one that mixes both granularity without over-promising on what it can deliver. If you use a monitoring platform at the proper jurisdictional level where you have the level of granularity that allows for corporates to make actual sourcing decisions, as opposed to a platform that's more global in nature that just helps to create awareness, let's say, across an industry or across stakeholder groups. It spurs an interest in action, but it doesn't provide the level of detail necessary to actually take on the ground action. A monitoring platform that offers you the information at the level to make actual decisions at farm and concession level is what's necessary. There's also been a lot of talk about nature-based solutions and even moving into natural carbon capture. How do you think these should develop to be most effective? So I think to be most effective, they basically need to be as inclusive of communities as possible in terms of gathering input on what mitigation activities are included in that particular project area, then also how the economic benefits are distributed. With NCS and NBS, they should really take full advantage of the technology that's available to them through reducing MRV costs, especially essentially democratizing access to, to carbon finance. 
such as like the work that we at Satelligence are doing is to, we're perfecting our methods to measure carbon sequestration at the landscape and all the way down to the smaller farm level. And so with that type of technological advances, it enables the carbon benefits of small farmers and landowners to actually be accounted for and crucially to actually be paid for by whichever actor is using those carbon credits. In terms of a mechanism in the voluntary carbon market, what many I've been seeing people talking about it now is just the verified carbon market because there's nothing voluntary about climate action is that it's a necessity and it's really the market mechanism that will scale this work when it's put in a combined effort with the global carbon market mechanism that should hopefully be coming out of COP26. What is it you're specifically looking for from COP26? You mentioned the voluntary carbon market. You refer to it as the verified carbon market, which is an interesting point. What are you looking for from COP26? I think what everyone's waiting for is finalizing the Paris rulebook. It's been lagging for a number of COPs now with fundamental disagreements, but on very fundamental things which is the need for agreement on transparency and and carbon accounting. That's the goal of COP26 is to finalize those aspects of the rulebook. There's other priorities around commitments to adaptation, financing, and things like that, which are obviously also critical. In order to really spur climate action, we really need the rulebook to be finalized so that government-to-government cooperation can start under Article 6 and then leverage their private sector partners to do so. To do all that, there still seem to me to be necessary to have ever more radical solutions. What are the radical solutions that do you think are necessary and can they flourish within existing market structures? They can certainly function within the the existing market structures, even though there are radical solutions such as scaling carbon credits via remote sensing, like the initiative that was launched last year under finite carbon to deliver carbon payments to small forest landowners in the U.S., That was an incredible new development for small landowners to benefit from the carbon credits that the private sector is purchasing. In order to truly move the needle on things, you need something a little more disruptive from the government side. Governments in many locales where you could have huge mitigation benefits in in tropical countries haven't been pushing the private sector hard enough in terms of getting them to change their practices. And whether that's a combination of incentives or disincentives that are lacking, it's really for those governments to decide what will work best for their relationships with the private sector. I'll probably get in trouble for pointing people to this, but the Jeffrey Sachs speech at the UN Food Systems Pre-Summit this summer was something that was quite revelatory in terms of talking about how food systems need to be upended and the way the governments need to be changing their interactions with the private sector basically to have them behave, pay their taxes and follow the rules would already result in climate benefits for everyone. I keep hearing from everybody, it's that getting the incentives right is so important and we're not there yet. And that's where the real radical change needs to come. Technology, of course, can provide exciting solutions. What excites you when you're advising companies about how to decarbonize their supply chains and halting deforestation and biodiversity decline? What gets you excited about all of that? It's really the scalability that's possible with our technology. Many of the companies that I've been speaking to and my passion and focus right now is in the cocoa sector with technology's ability to differentiate between the full sun and the shade cocoa systems, and then to be able to use that to then track progress across entire countries in terms of how the dissemination of shade trees to farmers is actually yielding true results in terms of increasing shade on farms and therefore increasing diversity of tree crops, food crops, and then the carbon and biodiversity benefits from scaled agroforestry, I think will be a huge boon to both the cocoa sector's uh, climate adaptation strategy, mitigation strategy, and its ability to deliver carbon finance to those farmers as companies use these efforts as a very large carbon insetting scheme for their own net zero strategies. 
it does feel like there are a number of radical solutions that are give the opportunity and kind of there's only now we can see how it could happen, how there would be an opportunity for businesses to get towards a net zero impact at the same time as providing incentives for farmers and growers that enable them to produce crops sustainably in the future. I mean, do you think that's right? I mean, are we actually now willing to see the real solutions emerging? Certainly, because before with all the 2020 commitments, companies were all about, you know, they were focused on zero deforestation commodities without really having a real plan to do so and not really a real incentive to do so. It was pretty much all around licensed to operate. But now with carbon being so entangled and intertwined with their deforestation commitments, there seems to be both more action spurred on and more ambition because it makes it more real for them. With carbon as an actual liability on their balance sheet and on for their public commitments and for their um, investors, that just makes it something they actually have to take real action on and invest in the solutions and the technology to make it happen. Carbon is providing the incentives that we've been talking about. There's, there's where it sits. Okay, well, it'd be interesting to see where we get to. Perhaps we can pick this up again another time. But for now, Alan from Satelligence, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. I was lucky enough to speak with the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil's Victor Taminjong recently, one of the RSPO's Growing Africa team, about the growing demand from palm oil growers to achieve certification and some of the drivers behind this. Let's talk, to kick things off, a bit about the history of the palm oil sector in West Africa. How do you characterise how the sector has evolved? It is generally agreed that oil palm, which is alias guineensis, originated in the tropical rainforest region of West and Central Africa. Some sources say that evidence of its use staple food dates as far back as 5,000 years. So it started with the harvesting of wild groves. This is a practice which is still common in Nigeria and Liberia today. It then moved from unmanaged wild groves to smallholders actively cultivating palm oil on small plots of land and processing using household utensils and rudimentary cottage-level artisanal mills. From the mid-50s to the 70s, the governments of many West African countries started commercial estates on huge chunks of land with modernized mills that were more efficient. From the 80s onwards, however, a lot of the West African governments went into divestiture implementation programs. Initially, the governments still had some shares, but eventually divested all of their shares to private investors or multinationals, mostly from Europe and later from Southeast Asia. The efficiency of production increased after these takeovers due to more efficient management and a lot more investment to modernize the mills and operations. It is important to note that even though we have many of these big estates and mills, smallholder production is still very significant and amounts to roughly 70% of palm oil output. In many parts of West Africa, artisanal mills are still very active and widespread. In between these smallholders, with a few hectares and artisanal mills, the very big estates with land holdings in tens of thousands of hectares and with processing capacity in tens of tons per hour, we also have medium-sized enterprises that are increasingly coming up. These have a few hundred to a few thousand hectares and a much lower processing capacity than the big estate. Up till recently, the focus has been on improving yields, improving processing capacity and efficiency, but now there is the sustainability in the mix where a lot of the actors are moving towards certification. As you say, that the focus now is moving towards thinking around the deforestation impacts and other sustainability issues around the palm oil sector. 
Let's think about Ghana in particular. How is the sector evolving in Ghana? And how is the RSPO engaging in Ghana around sustainability? Up until June 2017, RSPO didn't have any physical presence in Africa. Staff would occasionally come from the headquarters in Kuala Lumpur to work in Ghana and in West Africa in general. RSPO work was also done through partners such as Profiles and Solidaridad, who also happened to be RSPO members. But in 2015, the first Africa Sustainable Palm Oil Conference was organized in Ghana with participation from staff from the RSPO Secretariat. Another African regional conference was organized in 2016, still in Accra, Ghana, and these were fronted by ProForest. Because these two conferences were organized in Ghana, participation from the Ghanaian stakeholders was higher compared to other African countries. And in July 2017, the first RSPO Africa staff was employed, based in Ghana, increasing accessibility to stakeholders and able to give real-time support to stakeholders which might not have been the case before due to the seven to eight hour time difference with Malaysia. In terms of certification, Benso Palm Oil Plantation Bob were the first growers to be certified in August 2014, followed by Uleri Melville in Madagascar. The third certified company in Africa was also from Ghana, SIAT GOPDC in 2015, then Norpalm in 2016, and TOP in 2017. In terms of numbers, at 2019, the total crude palm oil production in Ghana was at 365,000 metric tons and 79,284 metric tons of that volume is RSPO certified, giving us 21.72% certification of Ghanaian production. This figure resembles the global certified sustainable palm oil figures, which also stand at 20%. Let's think a bit about smallholder farmers. As you said, Victor, smallholders are still very important in palm oil supply in Ghana and West Africa and elsewhere, of course. What are the specific challenges that you see in West Africa and Ghana around engaging smallholder farmers and the benefits of certifying palm oil production? So unlike the, the cocoa sector or other sectors in Ghana, up till 2013, the oil palm smallholders were scattered around the oil palm belts in Ghana. And you would understand that it is very difficult to engage smallholders individually. The first challenge was grouping these smallholders to ease engagement. In other West African countries like Cote d'Ivoire, the state has already organized smallholders into cooperatives, so it is much easier to get an entry point. The second challenge is that certification is not the immediate interest of smallholder farmers in Ghana. What is of interest to them is yield and income improvement, so certification cannot be the entry point. Market access, which is uh, one of the advantages or driving forces behind certification, is really not a challenge for smallholders in Ghana, because in addition to the big grower mills to whom they sell their fruits, we have thousands of cottage-level artisanal mills dotted all over the country and also offer very competitive prices to smallholders. So you understand that at the moment, market access is really not an issue. Given these challenges, the RSPO noticed that the entry point to certification was by first grouping these smallholders and also getting yield improvement through implementation of best management practices. In 2013, through Solidaridad, the RSPO Secretariat, through its RSPO Smallholder Support Fund, decided to fund a project in Ghana worth 166,000 US dollars with objectives to get smallholders into groups train them on BNP, best management practices, in order to get yield improvements, meaning more income for uh, these smallholders. It is only after these smallholders started benefiting from these trainings that we thought we could bring up the topic of certification. 
just to give you an idea, before these trainings with Solidaridad, smallholder yields would range from 2.5 tons per hectare to 6 tons per hectare, in contrast to the big growers who had yields ranging from 16 tons per hectare to above 20 tons per hectare. You can see that the discrepancy was quite high. After these trainings, some of the smallholders testified of having yields improve up to 16 tons per hectare. It is only at this point that we brought up the subject of certification. Even at that, there was still a major bottleneck because the certification standard at the time required that smallholders should have legal land titles, which is very difficult and expensive to obtain in Ghana. The situation is different now because we have the new RSPO independent smallholder standard, which is simplified and tailor-made for smallholders. This standard recognizes evidence of land rights based on traditions and customs. This has helped in the efforts to get many more smallholders certified. Yes, it's good to hear that the new RSPO smallholder standards are helping. You mentioned that traditional land titles in Ghana are not the same as the legal land titles that the RSPO is required elsewhere. Do you think that this traditional approach to land titles and land ownership is going to remain? Like I mentioned before, uh, getting legal land titles entails a very difficult and expensive process for smallholders. There are usually no conflicts in communities uh, where you find these smallholders because their traditions and customs permit them to know who owns the land and who has user rights. One other thing that the RSPO Secretariat has done to ease this is that the opportunity has been given to national stakeholders to develop national and local interpretations of the standards we have where requirements can be interpreted based on the local context. Ghana is one of the first countries that developed a national interpretation for the RSPO principles and criteria, and a local interpretation for the RSPO independent standards. In these standards, it is still clearly stated that land rights, according to customs and traditions, are recognized, uh, making things easier for smallholders. So I think this is a clear indication that the stakeholders are happy to go with this system of land rights. You mentioned that market access is not currently a major concern for smallholder farmers. Is that something that's going to change, do you think? The artisanal mills, uh, as I mentioned, cannot process all the foods that come from the smallholders. So the smallholders still have to sell to grower mills. With the grower mills having their buyers increasingly demanding certified palm oil, with time that pressure is going to be passed on to smallholders. So yes, going forward, we see a market access also becoming a driver for smallholder certification. What does the future hold for RSPO in West Africa? And what's the future for the palm oil sector in West Africa more generally? One of the goals is to get everyone in the palm oil supply chain certified in order to make sustainable palm oil the norm. By so doing, we will know that we are making a huge impact. But again, with the smallholders, we are going beyond certification and looking at yield and income improvements which are usually not directly related to certification. So these are the starting points for us, and these are clearly spelled out in our smallholder strategy. In terms of other grower members, we are noticing an increase in RSPO membership applications. Remember I mentioned that four grower members in Ghana were certified. In addition to them, there are other RSPO grower members who are not yet certified. We expect that in the future, the number of RSPO smallholders will be even higher. And once membership is granted to new members, they have a time-bound plan that they have to communicate and respect in getting their estate certified. This time-bound plan is usually not more than five years. 
Increasingly also, a lot of meals are having to sell to Europe and the buyers are strictly demanding RSPO certified palm oil or its derivatives. We think that this is also going to exponentially increase certification figures in the coming years, both in Ghana and in West Africa in general. Financiers also, on their part, are demanding that companies pursue RSPO certification as part of their due diligence requirements. We think this is also going to lead to an increase in certification. With the RSPO independent smallholder standard being a simplified standard tailor-made for smallholders, we foresee that many more smallholders in Ghana and West Africa will get certified in the near future. For instance, a very good example is coming from Sierra Leone, where a group of around 5,000 smallholders in the gold tree landscape have undergone their initial certification and are certified to milestone B, which is the last phase of this stepwise certification approach. They were certified on the 13th of July, 2021, and this group is also receiving support from the RSPO Smallholder Support Fund. The certification of these close to 5,000 smallholders will certainly set the tone for the certification of many other groups in the near future. As concerns the downstream side of the supply chain, because we have dwelled more on the upstream side, many uptakers in Africa have also made public commitments at the global level with timelines to source 100% sustainable palm oil. Because of this, we are also expecting an increase, not only in certification, but also in the uptake of certified palm oil. From July 2017 also to September 2018, we had just one RSPO staff in Africa. Now we have two. The RSPO Secretariat is also in the process of increasing the staff strength, and we have already recruited the smallholder program manager who should join the team soon. We are also in the process of recruiting an assurance manager. This should be done in the coming month. This means that the staff strength would have doubled by the end of the year. Based on the organizational plans, other positions will be open for Africa next year. With this increase in staff, we see a brighter future for RSPO in Africa due to increasing impact. It's great to hear that you're able to increase resources in Africa and to continually increase the amount of engagement you have, particularly with the smallholder farmers, which, as we said, are so, so much a large part of the sector in Africa and beyond. So thanks, Victor, for sharing your insights and thanks very much. Thank you, Jan. Don't forget to go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and interviews and for details of how to join us at our autumn event series. But that's it for now. I'm Neil Welsh and until next week, goodbye.